Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard and this week we're going to talk about the German Council Presidency. We've talked about it before, but then it was just a concept. Now it's actually starting. And I'm very happy to welcome Jana Pulierin, the head of our Berlin office for today's podcast. Thank you very much for joining, Jana. Last week at our annual council meeting, Heiko Maas, the German foreign minister, gave the opening remarks and he referred to the high expectations which the world is placing on the German council presidency and summarized the program in a nutshell as all about two words, solidarity and sovereignty. He explained that the future budget for the next seven years will be the top priority of the German presidency and highlighted that it cannot simply be about reconstruction. I quote, what is more, any form of reconstruction is doomed to failure if it does not simultaneously become greener, more social, more digital and more innovative. Finally, Maas promoted in his speech European sovereignty, one of the frequent topics that we've discussed on this podcast. And he explained what it means which is quite helpful given that there have been some quite heated debates in Brussels about the significance of this phrase. And he said, European sovereignty, as I understand it, means that Europe can act independently and decide to pool its resources in areas where individual states have long since lost their ability to shape globalization to the major powers, which is very similar to the definition that we have been using for strategic sovereignty in all of our work at ECFR. So very excited to be talking to Jana. But before we go to Jana, we also want to provide our listeners with some audio impressions from the opening panel during the annual council meeting, where we had some other German political figures. Norbert Röttgen, who is the, the co-chair of ECFR from the, the Christian Democratic Union, Angela Merkel's party. We had Franziska Brandner, who's also on the ECFR board from the Green Party, uh, Niels Annen, who is minister in the foreign ministry from the SPD, and Alexander Graf Lambsdorff from the FDP. So our relationships to China, also to a broader security contribution to the transatlantic relationship. So, so at least some steps which make clear the determination we are going to develop our ability to act beyond our borders for our interests and values have to be taken. And this should also be seen as a measure of success of this German presidency and the next half year. When it comes to the budget, and Mr. Maas correctly said that this is the number one priority, it must be. I really don't see yet that this money is enough focused on the future. When you look at the legal texts that are the basis for the billions it's going to spend, there is no legal binding obligation to spend it on climate change or on digital or on becoming more resilient. And I think that we really need to make sure that we do invest in the future. And we need to make sure that this money will not harm the climate and environment. And the last point, when it comes to the budget, I'm worried that there is too much going on directly for member states, 85%. And there, there are very few European projects as such, like flagship projects. We should define those common European projects, use the money to invest in these so that we will really be better off at the end of the crisis compared to the beginning. 
it's very obvious that we need to deal with more European sovereignty because of the um, health problems that Minister Maas mentioned. But for example, we are having right now a very difficult debate with our American friends. And U.S. Congress just introduced new legislation that would introduce additional extraterritorial sanctions targeting European energy supply and other aspects if we look at the Iran crisis. So we need to talk and not only talk, but we need to create instruments that make our European policies more sovereign. In the fall, we will see bankruptcies, we will see job losses, we will see social tensions, we will see a massive economic backlash from this COVID pandemic. And that is why we as economy party, we want to see a presidency that focuses really on the economic revival of the European Union. And that, of course, will have to play out in the budget as well. How are the trans-European networks going to be financed? Is the European Research Council going to be financed better than it was in the past? I mean, research, innovation, you, you can actually do something there. Last time around, and I was in Brussels for the last multi-annual financial framework, it turned out that it all went to agriculture, it all went to cohesion. That's what we do not want to see this time around. Okay, well, that was interesting, and I think gives you a very good flavour of the discussions we had during the council meeting. But here I am joined by Jana, and we're going to try and make sense of some of the big things that we can expect from the German presidency. Hopefully, if we have time, we're going to go through five big themes, talking about European recovery, about the idea of the rule of law and the criteria attached to the recovery fund, about this idea of European sovereignty, particularly looking at security and defence. We're going to talk a bit about the Franco-German engine, which is being repowered at the moment with a new government in France. And finally, look at some of the stumbling blocks which might surface during the presidency. So, Jana, why don't we start with the European recovery? We've talked about that often on the podcast, but as Marsh said in his speech, it is obviously one of the top priorities of the presidency. And there is a big debate going on about how the recovery fund gets spent. Some people think that there's a danger that nobody will in fact notice this recovery fund because 85% of the budget is going to go directly to member states. Will there actually be any European projects that anyone notices? And can the German presidency change that this situation? Or is it just going to be business as usual with the structural funds quietly handing these things out and, and making sure that they support the normal economic workings of different countries rather than helping to modernise the European continent? Well, I think it was very important, especially also for the Germans, to link the Green Deal and the digital angle to the recovery fund because many people here in Germany in the beginning were worried that they were going to pay money to pay old Italian debt. So I think it's crucial also for the legitimacy of the recovery fund that we can claim that it helps to transform European economies and that yeah, it serves two purposes to get European economies out of the crisis, uh, but in an innovative and forward-looking way, and that we don't finance with the money industries that are not uh, sustainable, but that the whole thing is future-oriented. That's the theory, but is it going to be possible to do that? 
Well, I think the main task is to get the thing off the ground because there is still a huge debate about grants versus loans or what kind of conditionality to apply, how to pay the money back, whether the EU needs own resources to pay the money back and how to distribute and or allocate the money. So I think we are not there yet and it's a big fight. And so I'm hopeful that the German Council presidency will manage to forge an agreement between all the member states. But I think we should not overload the recovery fund with expectations. And what do you think is going to happen to public support for the EU if the money just does go into member state budgets and you don't have this kind of conditionality? Do you think that we could end up with a big backlash a few years down the line in German politics once Angela Merkel has left and the new political leaders are no longer as committed to this recovery fund as she is? I think it depends very much how the economic situation in Germany develops over the next couple of months. So far, it doesn't feel like we are in a huge economic crisis, although I think that Germany will also be hit hard. So I think the legitimacy of the whole thing depends also a lot on kind of the narrative we develop afterwards. So Angela Merkel right now tells uh, the German population that this is an historical, unique moment. It's a one-off thing that because the crisis is so deep and so unprecedented, uh, we need to do something extraordinary. But this is not the new normal. So I think afterwards we will have a debate, yeah, how to pay the money back, how soon and who's paying what. And so I think that will very much also shape the debate in Germany. And where is the criticism going to come from? Because I mean, the SPD is obviously driving this as much as the CDU is at the moment. And if Olaf Scholz is the uh, leading figure in the SPD in the elections and afterwards, he's unlikely to be attacking this. The Green Party seems to be very committed to it. So is it basically backlash within the CDU itself, which might take place once Merkel leaves? Or is it the fact that IFD, the Alternative for Germany and the FDP, the Liberal Party, could attack it from the outside and work with German media to try and turn the debate around on these things? Because they obviously have been quite critical already. Yeah, the scenario that you laid out is exactly what happened during the Eurozone crisis. So I can imagine if things go wrong, that the AFD, which kind of was founded because of what they perceived as the mismanagement of the Eurozone crisis by Merkel. So I think that the AFD might get new energy if things go wrong because of that narrative that we are paying, I don't know, uh, the Italians for having a beautiful life as pensioners way earlier than we do. That's what happened during the Eurozone crisis. I hope that it doesn't. But I think there is the potential coming from the AFD, but also the CDU, CSU. I think they are supporting this right now because they see it as something that is not permanent, that is not the new normal, that is not the new approach to how Germany sees kind of things like the fiscal union and the further development of the economic and monetary union. So I think it depends also who takes over in the CDU, CSU and what direction the party will take. But I think there is the potential for a scenario as you described it. So let's go on to the second topic, which is this idea of rule of law criteria. It's very striking that Heiko Maas in his speech at ECFR highlighted the need to ensure that these funds don't just have conditionality about being green and more social and more digital, but explicitly said that they should be allocated according to rule of law criteria. 
Do you think that this is going to actually happen? I mean, this is something which Germany's been talking about for a long time. The idea, I think, first started surfacing when the Hungarians and other Eastern Europeans were less than completely on board with showing solidarity during the refugee crisis. And there were lots of warnings from Germany that there might be different criteria put into the rules for the new European budget. Is this actually going to happen? I'm actually quite pessimistic about this. I mean, I would love to see it happening, but I think the whole rule of law question connected to the MFF already got watered down quite significantly in February. So the MFF is the multi-annual financial framework, the new EU budget. So I think that the main emphasis now is to get a deal done. And the deal needs to include the recovery fund and the multi-annual financial framework for the European Union. And you need consensus to get this deal done. So you need every member state on board. And there is this idea of conditionality and of rule of law conditionality. But I think, and that was also expressed during our annual council meeting by several people, that there is the potential that in order to make a big package deal that you don't pay enough attention or that you decide to willfully ignore some rule of law violations in order to get the countries on board that that would oppose such a conditionality. So I'm actually skeptical. But I wish it would happen. But I think it's also a huge danger if we don't do it, because the rule of law in the EU is already very much under pressure with the question, what role kind of the EU law plays vis-a-vis national law. And so I hope for some conditionality, the way the Germans want to push for it. But I'm afraid that this falls victim to the consensus driven process. And do you think that another part of the problem is the Germany's own rule of law situation with the role of the Bundesverfassungsgericht, the German constitutional court, which has been somewhat in conflict with EU institutions in EU law in recent months? No, but I think that these are not comparable. I think what we talk about here is kind of the reform of the justice system in Poland. Then maybe not from a German perspective, but from a Polish perspective, they in fact, have directly compared them. They were very happy at what the Bundesverfassungsgericht had said about the European Court of Justice because they thought it was very comparable with their yeah, situation. Absolutely. No, absolutely. And I think that was the biggest damage that this verdict did, the German Constitutional Court, that it enabled other countries to say, oh, look, there is no superiority of EU law and kind of it's all the same. And uh, we are right to claim that the European Court of Justice has no legitimacy to tell us what we need to do. I think that's a very worrying tendency in Europe. Okay, well... Let's move on to the third topic. We talked a bit about European sovereignty and what Heiko Maas said. We talked a bit about in last week's podcast on on the healthcare front, what health sovereignty meant. We heard from Jens Spahn there. But one of the most interesting bits of the discussion about the presidency came with Nabil Röttgen, our co-chair, who was talking about how a key part of European sovereignty is actually taking our interests in our own hands and acting on them beyond our borders. If we look at security and defence, which is an area that you've been working on for a very long time now, Jana, and it was lined up to be an important part of what a geopolitical Europe would look like under Ursula von der Leyen. How much space do you think there is on the agenda for these sorts of issues? I mean, either in the abstract in terms of building European defence capabilities or on specific issues like Libya or Syria, where Europe has really been struggling to get its act together and to have any say. 
Well, I'm afraid in general that the, the expectations for this presidency are, are way too big. Germany will never be able to deliver because of the recovery fund and the MFF being the overarching topics, but also because of Brexit, I think taking a lot of time and because of such issues yeah, like migration, which need to be discussed on the EU level. So I think there is a lot of foreign policy in the German Council presidency program, although the security and defense bit, I think, is actually rather tiny compared to other issues. I think there will be a strong focus on two projects from the German side. One is the Strategic Compass. This is a project that starts with the German Council Presidency and should end with the French Council Presidency. And it's kind of the first project in a long time that both countries, I mean, in the security and defense sector, that both countries agreed on and see as equally important. Do you want to explain what it is to people who are not fully up to speed with the Strategic Compass? The idea is to make the attempt to have a mapping of threat perceptions uh, throughout Europe and then also to develop a better understanding what kind of security and defense actor the European Union should become. So what, why do we do all this? Kind of what for? So I think it's a good project. Critics say that it's, again, a lot of paper and no action and no capabilities. That might be fair, but nevertheless, it addresses an important issue. And who's going to be doing it, this mapping? The process should be driven by the member states and Josep Borrell is going to be the penholder of this. So I think this is one of the key areas for security and defense. And the other thing that the Germans want to work on and boost is the EU-NATO cooperation, which I think is also a very important and very much needed. But at the beginning of the presidency, I think it all comes down to the question how much money the defense funds gets and how much money there will be for military mobility in the MFF. So it's a money question. Okay. Presumably, the results of the election in November will determine quite how much energy goes into this revival of NATO dossier. Yeah, that's true. And overall, I'm actually a bit astonished how little attention this area got over the past months and weeks. I mean, that is due to Corona, but not only. I think there is also a lot of frustration or has been a lot of frustration between the French and the Germans because the French increasingly do missions or operations outside the EU framework, which always causes a problem for the Germans. So I think this is an area where one hoped to make a lot of progress after 2016 and one did with the PESCO projects and all of this, but this reached a that end. And so I would love to see a bit more life in this policy area. Okay. So that brings us to the fourth big question, which we were going to talk about, which is the Franco-German engine. We've uh, declared it broken many times on this podcast. It is a relationship which seems to be unusually resilient, lurching from crisis to crisis. And then every now and again, you get these very impressive symbolic acts for Franco-German determination. And the agreement on the recovery fund is one of those. What state do you think the Franco-German engine is now in? It was striking at the annual council meeting, listening to the French finance minister, Bruno Le Maire, talking about Germany in much more positive terms than we've heard French people use for quite a long time. What's the mood in Berlin on the Franco-German engine and where it's going to take us? So interestingly, I think the mood in Berlin has always been more positive on the Franco-German engine than from the French side. And I can maybe give you a little insight in some ECFR research that we are going to publish soon. We did the uh, European Coalition Explorer once more in 2020. And one of the key findings is the huge disillusionment that the French have with the Germans. So every second French respondent chose Germany as one of the countries he or she was most disappointed with over the past two years. So that was quite striking and you don't see it 
on the German side. What you see as well is this really intense network between both countries. So they are much closer aligned than any other countries are in the European Union. And actually, the Germans have been, I think, always more positive about the relationship, as is also mirrored in our survey. You talked about symbolic action. So if this recovery fund will remain largely symbolic, I think that the relationship will be where it has been before, not in good shape. But I think it can also really revive this relationship again. I think the French were really happy to see the Germans move on one of the topics where they have been quite resilient to, yeah, to show any movement. And I think the big danger here is that the French might expect the Germans to um, have shifted position more permanently than the Germans. Germans currently think they did. And so I think the question here is how to shape, let's say, the so-called Hamiltonian moment. And I'm not sure if it is one, but I think the French want to make it one. And I'm not sure if the Germans agree. Okay. So why don't we end with the fifth topic, which is the stumbling box. What could go wrong for the German presidency? Niels Annen, when we're having the discussion, talked a lot about the importance of expectation management. Where do you think that the biggest challenges might be? So I think Niels Ann has a point there because, I mean, what this presidency can realistically achieve is pretty limited because the scope of the EU presidency per se has diminished over time and it's limited to the council and it's actually the presidency usually mediates and puts things on the agenda and proposes rather than forces things to happen. So Germany sees itself as a bridge builder and as an honest broker. But then again, I mean, Germany is Germany and it's influential with or without being at the helm of the European Union. But I think expectation management is a crucial issue also because there are these restrictions due to COVID and only, I think they talked about 30% of the meetings that they planned that could happen now. So I think the chemistry is really different if you do everything online than if you meet during coffee breaks or at the corridors. And I think the really crucial question is whether the Germans will succeed in getting this recovery fund and putting it together. If they don't, I think the co-presidency will be seen as a failure. So there are two other big things that are happening, which I suppose are great unknowns about the presidency. One is Brexit. The other is the elections in November. Could they be the things which destroy the presidency? On Brexit, I don't think so, because, I mean, this is kind of everybody is very disillusioned about uh, the direction this is going to take. I think the EU prepares for a hard Brexit, but I think you don't see any outliers within the European camp. So this is very much a thing that the Commission drives. And so I think there is quite unity amongst European heads of state and government. The presidential elections in the US, I think, that is a really a big unknown. I think that is the most crucial election in American history for us Europeans. So, I mean, let's hope for the best outcome. What are the hopes of Germany? I mean, one of the interesting things that seems to be happening in Germany is that the public is becoming less and less interested in America. I mean, the recent announcement by Donald Trump about withdrawing troops from German bases you know, if that happened 20 years ago, I mean, what will you tell me? One could imagine that being a big event leading to a big sense of uncertainty and something which could dominate German politics. Was in fact, it all seemed to be greeted with a big yawn and, you know, it was a day's media and then people seem to have moved on to other things. Is the US just less important from a German perspective than it used to be? I think it depends whom you are asking. If you ask defense and security people, they would always emphasize how hugely dependent we are on the United States and that we cannot 
simply afford to lose them as allies and that we kind of need NATO and close cooperation and all that. But I think the broader public is really disillusioned. And you see that with our ECFR unlock data. I mean, I think only 2% of the Germans see or hope that the US will be a helpful ally in dealing with this crisis. And so I think 65% of Germans have said that they are uh, hugely disappointed uh, with the United States. And that, and I mean, this confirms uh, previous polls, but I think the picture is now even darker. And what I witnessed, and also with Heiko Maas's speech, but also when Jens Spahn talked about health sovereignty at our ACM, I think that the Germans become increasingly used to, to using the word European sovereignty, and they become more self-conscious and more aware that we really need to take our destiny in our own hands. I think they started being more serious about it. Okay. Well, thanks a lot for that. I think we got through all the big questions that we had at the beginning. There's one thing left to do on this podcast, and that's our bookshelf segment. What's on your bookshelf at the moment, Jana? Well, I will be on leave from tomorrow on. And so I have a book written by David Axelrod. It's actually his political biography. It's called Believer, My 40 Years in Politics. And that brings me back to hope and to the United States and the outcome of this election, because David Axelrod was kind of the strategist, the mastermind behind Barack Obama's historic election campaign. And so I dive a bit into kind of the good old America under Barack Obama and how they did it. And I keep my fingers crossed for and rather than recommending a book i recommend that you go to our website and watch some of the incredible sessions we had in our annual council meeting we had the the speeches that we just talked about from heiko maas from all the german politicians as well as contributions from margrethe vestager and karl bilk about technological sovereignty from Joseph Borrell about Europe's role in the world, about European solidarity with the French finance minister and Alex Sturban, the Spanish state secretary, and lots of other really interesting food for thought, talking to historians, to all sorts of experts about different parts of the world. And we even had a panel on Brexit. But for now, we've come to the end of our podcast. If you've enjoyed listening to us, do give us a wonderful review and a five-star rating on whatever platform you've used to listen to us on today. And we will put links up to all our publications that we've mentioned on our website at www.ecfr.eu slash podcasts. But for now, from Jana Pulierin and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The researcher of ECFR's podcast is Lucy Halpenthal. Our editor is Gabrielle Wolitskaita and the producer is Marlena Riedel. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm.